Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our seventh episode of True Crime Digest. Today, we have some updates along with a couple new cases we'll be talking about. I'm very excited. I think we have a really interesting crop of cases this time. Yeah. Also, just before we get started, my voice is a little strange because I have a cold. So if you're like, why does she sound strange? This is why. Maybe I don't to you. And it's all in my head. That's also a possibility. I guess we'll give you some slack today. Ugh, ridiculous. <laughs> I want you a microphone ready at all times. (laughs) So a quick update on the Kendrick Johnson case. There was a new documentary that was made called Finding Kendrick Johnson, and it was released at the beginning of August. So we'll have to check that out. Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to watch it, but from the few things I saw, it looked like people were liking the way they told his story. That's good. It's on Amazon Prime. I think it's like $4.99 to rent. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to do that later this weekend. Another kind of update for Daniel Robinson, who is the missing person from Arizona. I signed up for the text alerts because if there is a weekend that I'm able to help, I want to go and help. So Wednesday, August 18th, I received a text that said that Saturday's search on the 21st was postponed because they have canine teams coming to conduct searches, but they're going to continue doing searches on Saturdays from there. As of August 24th, though, unfortunately, I haven't seen any new information come up, but I am seeing that the sector map on their website is being filled up. So they're having a lot of volunteers. They're having people still searching the area. There is like a little chat on there, too. So when people are searching, they can kind of communicate or when they're done, they can communicate and ask questions. So I think that that's really nice. Uh, I also saw that his dad responds to some of them. So still there. If you live in Arizona and you have some time on Saturdays, it's when they're doing the searches. And I just hope that his family either gets some closure or maybe some crazy thing happened where he's alive somewhere and doing well and that they get to figure everything out soon. Yeah. And another one that we discussed was the body that was found at the Douglas Scott home. And as a reminder, the sister was missing and then they found a body in the home when they were cleaning it out for their father. So on August 18th of 2021, the main office of the chief medical examiner announced that the remains that were found were that of Denise Scott, so the missing person. She had been reported missing by her brother while her brother was looking for her during the probate process after their father passed away. The cause of death still has not been announced. So that's really tragic for that poor family. Yeah, it really, really is. And from what I understand, we talked about it when we discussed the original case, but that her remains have been found in a shed. Yeah. Just really, really heartbreaking. So we're actually we're going to move on to our new cases. We've talked about it before, but we keep our Laurie Vallow and Chad Dayball case updates till the end of the episode. So we're going to start into new cases. So the first is a missing person and his name is Ian Solheim. He was last seen in Washington, D.C. on July 25th and he was reported missing on July 28th. He's 31 years old and he is a white male. He's 6'3", 185 pounds with hazel eyes and light brown hair. So according to his father, Mark Solheim, he called his mother, who was 
there in D.C. on the Wednesday before he disappeared and said that he was in crisis. And by the time she was able to go see him, he was already gone. And I saw some reports that he may be missing medication right now and that he may have mental illness that is untreated at the moment. And that might be part of it. I also saw that he was perhaps having a very bad depressive episode. His friends have been working really, really hard to find him. There is a Google Sheet that I found and it's the search efforts that have been organized and there's like 150 people on there who have canvassed DC and the surrounding areas and gave flyers, talked to folks to try to track down leads and when they find something, they call the police and let them know. We will have his missing persons flyer on our social media. Yeah. And it has the number to call. But if you have seen him, it's the Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099. Yeah. And he's a teacher, isn't he? Yeah, he's a teacher. And I believe he teaches English as a second language. And everyone who knows him describes him as just wonderful. This wonderful human. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures, uh, obviously, so people know what he looks like. He looks like he played guitar. Yeah. He was really passionate about teaching. So all around seems like a good guy. So hopefully he's found. Yeah. And you'll notice the past few episodes we've had, we've discussed missing persons cases. If there is someone that you're aware of and you'd like for us to be able to spread the word a little more, feel free to send us information over and we'll include them in our True Crime Digest updates. Yeah. So the next case that we'll talk about is the Leslie McCray case. And finally, her killer was indicted. So a grand jury indicted 59-year-old David Nelson Austin on first-degree murder charges for the murder of 17-year-old Leslie McCray from 1985. Woof. Long time. Long time to wait. Yeah. Yeah. So this asshole was already in prison in Michigan serving a life sentence for sexual assault convictions, armed kidnapping, and armed sexual battery. Leslie was murdered on Christmas Eve of 1985. I can't even imagine. The holidays, it's supposed to be really fun and exciting and yeah, you see all your family and no. And just to touch on what happened to her, I'm not going to go into too many details, but he had kidnapped her at knife point from her apartment. So both her and her boyfriend were there. He tied them both up. And then in front of him, dragged Leslie away. So he didn't know what happened at first. That's terrible. The guilt he must have lived with. Just, you know, like, yeah, he couldn't have done anything, but it was still just absolutely awful. So when he was finally able to free himself, he obviously he called police. And unfortunately, she was found hours later dead on the side of a road. So at that point, you know, DNA evidence couldn't really be used too much. But finally, in 2019, it led authorities to Austin. He hasn't entered any pleas yet, and they're working on extraditing him to Florida. So as this progresses in the court systems, we'll go back to it. So the next case we're going to talk about is that of Crystal Michelle Turner and Kylan Carol Schultz. So this is actually a very, very recent case in that, like, this happened like a week ago. So Crystal Turner and Kylan Schultz were married in April of this year and their friends said that they had like moved around a lot in their converted van and folks described them as having like a bohemian lifestyle and they would camp out all the time. Kylan's friends described her as magical, sweet and beautiful. The couple went camping in southeast Utah at a campsite in LaSalle Mountains and they had texted a couple of their friends and Kylan even mentioned to her father that they had to move their campsite after a quote unquote creepy guy had been kind of hanging around and lurking around them. And they were used to camping and they were used to being on different campsites and that kind of life. So their friends were extra worried that they were kind of rattled by someone. 
because like that's like the vibe they were used to, right? And so when Crystal didn't show up for work, her coworkers began to worry. Additionally, Kylan's father started to get very unnerved because his daughter had told him about some creepy guy and then he didn't hear from her. So he called her friend, who was Cindy Sue Hunter, and asked her to go look for them. And so Cindy went to LaSalle Mountains, found their campsite, and she was looking around the campsite with Kylan's father on the phone when she found the bodies. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's horrific. And she describes, like, she looked at them, saw them, and immediately turned away and was just, like, processing what she was seeing because, like, one, it was her friend, but she was, like, described that she was surrounded by the beauty of nature and, like, there was this horrible thing. It was a very interesting description of what was happening. Yeah. So she had found them on August 18th and... They had both had gunshot wounds. The medical examiner confirmed that they had both died from those fatal gunshot wounds. I'm surprised no one at a campsite ran into them before because most campsites don't you pay for? And then I assume they should have already left. So someone would have been like, um, guys, you know? Yeah. But from what I understand, they would stay there for like a couple of days. I'm not 100% sure, but from what it looked like, it looked like they may have like lived out of their converted van. Yeah. So they may have like stayed at a campsite for a week and like, gone to work and like lived their lives but where they lived was a campsite so i don't think it would have been strange for them to be there for longer and also like depending on the campsite especially if you're in the mountains you might not be near a lot of other people so kylan's family has a gofundme to raise money for the burial costs and it was started by kylan's aunt bridget calvert and it actually surpassed the goal and they put on that they're going to share the money with crystal's family as well kylan's family wants to bury her next to her brother macian who died in 2015 and he was shot by one of his friends accidentally and my heart hurts for them so much and you generally don't hear of families not burying spouses together so i would be very upset if the families would separate them if that would have been something they would want. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know their personal beliefs. I'm like, throw my body in a dumpster. I'm good. But like, if you're the type of person who believes in like burying people next to one another, I would hope that they would be together. But yeah, and they're still they're newlywed. Yeah, that's so sad. And everyone describes them as like so in love and all the photos of them. They're just like the way they look at each other. You can see like yeah. two people who like found their person. There's a bunch, but yeah, they're adorable together. Yeah. And so the Grand County Sheriff's Department is in charge of the investigation. And they stated that there's, quote, no current danger to the public in relation to their murders, which is very confusing. There's a murderer on the loose. <laughs> yeah, there's a murderer on the loose. And it seems like a cavalier statement in the face of two women being faced shot unless somewhere in there and the speculation but i wonder if they have some leads and it was personal you know like they went after these girls because it was a personal vendetta or something and that no one else is really in danger i mean that's fair but it's a weird thing to say it is right yeah so far investigators have not found a firearm in the area but they are continuing to investigate leads I looked on Facebook and some like message boards where the police had like put a statement out where the public could comment. And most people seem pretty frustrated by the fact that they're like, there's no current danger to the public because some people were shot. Yeah. And it kind of like goes between that and other people asking, was this a hate crime? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason not to believe that people could be in danger or that they were targeted because it was two women that were married. Yeah. So another interesting story that is still developing is there's a family and their dog found dead on a hiking trail this month. The family members were John Garish 
Ellen Chung and Miju. And she was only one years old. So she was just a little baby. And their dog, Oxy. And they were found on the Savage Lundy Trail in the Sierra National Forest. And that's near Yosemite National Park on August 17th. Search and rescue found the family near the Devil's Gulch area. And when they found them, John was in the seated position with Miju and Oxy next to him. So the dog was next to him. The baby was near him. And Ellen was found a little further up the hill. They were reported missing the evening before around 11 p.m. And the reason is the nanny had showed up and no one was there. And then also they didn't show up for work that day. It was noted that their truck was also missing. So police found their truck near the trail's entrance around 2 a.m. And then they were found between, I've seen varying accounts, but between like 9 and 10 a.m. And it was about a mile and a half away from where they had parked. Couple notes is the family was well prepared for the hike. I've seen some people talk about how they, once they had moved in that area, they were very outdoorsy, so they should have known what to expect on this hike. This particular trail is pretty popular in the springtime because of the blooming wildflowers. I couldn't find anything that said whether or not they had actually been to that trail before or if that was their first time, though. There's also no cell service in that area. The last time that they were heard from was when they uploaded a picture of a backpack early Sunday morning. So it's probably something along the lines of prepared for the hike or something like that would be my assumption. And currently Mariposa County Sheriff's Office and the California Department of Justice are both investigating their deaths. It scares me the idea that like they went out for a day hike and didn't come home. Yeah. Because when I first read this story, I was like, were they camping? And then I was like, no, because I was like camping with a one year old sounds like a difficult time. Horrible. Yeah. And since they were outdoorsy people, I feel like they'd know more than the average person. Right. So here's the weird part. This is where it's going to start getting a little more strange. There are no signs of trauma. There's no suicide notes and there's no indication of what caused their death. A lot of people are like, it's very weird that people are dead and the dog is dead. Yes. You know, and they're all kind of in that same clustered area because I feel like if something tragic happened, I don't know, maybe to the baby or even maybe the dog, right? One person would probably stay to aid whatever was happening with the two that can't really go on their own, the baby and the dog, and one would venture out to go get help. Yeah. It's weird that the baby's next to him, dog's near him, and that she was walking a little bit away when all this happened. I actually feel like even it would make sense if the dog would go with her, right? Like, I feel like if it was Ben and I, who would be like, you take you and Moo go, I'll stay with baby. Or, you know, or vice versa. But whoever was leaving would likely take the dog. See, I think it depends. Like, I've seen the dog. It's a medium-sized dog. It's more like, what if there was, I don't know, that hiking trail. But it seems like it, it's not that difficult. But if it were a little bit difficult, maybe the dog would have trouble keeping up or like, you kind of get in that mentality of, I need to find help. I don't have time to worry about something else. Yeah. So at least with my dogs, I'd probably leave the one with whoever. That's fair. It's a weird situation. It's very strange. At first, the first responders thought that maybe they could have been poisoned by carbon monoxide from the nearby mines. And they actually treated the area as a possible hazmat scene. And then from what I understand, they took it down the following day and they're like, no, that's not it. In July, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife conducted water tests near the river, and it showed high concentrations of algae bloom. And it makes sense to me. Yeah, they're doing water tests ever so often, right? Yeah. Well, 
with this particular bloom, they were worried about toxic algae. So the Sierra National Forest asked visitors not to swim, wade, or allow their pets to drink from that part of the river because of the algae mats that were present. And I feel like if they were experienced, outdoorsy hikers, you know, that type of person, honestly, most people probably wouldn't drink from a river, right? Well, most people wouldn't, but they especially wouldn't be giving their one-year-old daughter water from. I actually don't know any parent who would be like, natural occurring water, drink up, little kid. Most of them are like, I have brought you water or milk or whatever. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm like about that theory is because I don't think they would have given it to the baby. No, no. I've read a lot about dogs drinking river water, lake water and things like that and getting super sick and some of them passing away. But normally it's not same day. Most of the time, at least the ones that I've read about, because I'm always very stressed out when we take our dogs places where I'm like, nope, don't let them near that water. I don't want them to drink it. Yeah. So the family's bodies were autopsied, but the toxicology results can take weeks to determine the cause of death. From what's been published, the initial autopsies have showed no conclusive results and we're still waiting for the toxicology reports. They're also looking into how the dog died as well. So just another note is there were no other dead animals in the area. So if, if it had been, let's say, the toxic algae, right, you would think that there'd be some wildlife nearby that was also dead. But in that particular area, they haven't seen anything. Very bizarre. So just a little bit about the family. There's not too much out there other than they were very well loved, very well liked. Didn't seem like they had any enemies that I could find. John worked for Google, but had recently started working at Snapchat. Ellen was working towards a master's in family therapy. And one of their family friends, his name's Steve, he said that they were amazing people and they loved their daughter very much. So the murder theory doesn't really seem to come up. There's no evidence of it right now. Yeah. There are a few theories that I, you know, between all the articles and some online threads, some people say maybe a rattlesnake, but I feel like they would have seen proof when they're looking over the bodies because it's going to leave bite marks. And also from my experience, I mean, again, I'm not that outdoorsy, but at least in Arizona, rattlesnake season is normally in the springtime. So not saying that there's none out there. Yeah, could be different for that area. I'm not sure. But also, they normally give warning when you're pretty close to them. They literally rattle. Well, what else? Like, I feel like, again, you would see snake bite. You would. Yeah. I have a very, very big fear of rattlesnakes here even. But there's times whenever we're going to go hiking, I always look. And that's how I remember when rattlesnake season is because I'm like, is it time? Am I allowed to go out? No. <laughs> okay. Have fun. Is it rattlesnake season, scorpion season, or is it a mere 130 degrees outside? There's no winning here. So the theory of carbon monoxide poisoning. I tried to look it up a little bit more because I'm like, is that a thing being outdoors? I didn't know that that could happen outside of like a garage. Yeah, same. So hazmat declaration was lifted on Wednesday the 18th, and they're saying it's looking less likely. The closest mine would have been about three miles from where they were found. So that's not to say that they were, you know, there at one point. I don't know. Dr. Mike Nelson, who's a professor of mining engineering at the University of Utah, doubted the theory and explained that gold mines are not known to produce carbon monoxide. And let's say even if they were present, it probably would have just gone up into the air. It wouldn't have like stayed in the concentrated area. That's what kind of went into my head is that one of the reasons that generally when we're thinking of carbon monoxide being dangerous, it's an enclosed space, not just like in the infinite world. Right, right. That's never crossed my mind until this case. 
So I also read an article about coroners and it said that coroners are pretty good at being able to recognize the carbon monoxide related deaths. And it seems like there's some telling signs, including liver mortis being cherry pink. And I'm like, what is that? So liver mortis refers to the pulling of blood in the lower portion of the body after death. And it occurs because the heart's no longer moving blood around. Hmm. So they said there was like percentages, but it seems like they'd likely know, okay, there's some sort of carbon monoxide poisoning or some sort of poisoning based off of this. But I haven't read anything that leads to that. Talking about the toxic algae, it's reported that human deaths are pretty rare from it. And it would take a very high concentration to kill a human rapidly. So again, like that kind of puts out that theory of maybe if the dog drank a ton of it, maybe the dog wasn't doing well, but I still don't understand how all of them would be dead. Another thing that people are talking about is heat stroke. And from what I saw online, it was over 100 degrees at certain times between Sunday and Monday. So in the afternoon. And I mean, like you mentioned, like here, when it's 115, no one's going outside. No one's doing anything. And a a lot of the places here, too, there's laws against taking your dogs on certain trails when it's that hot. So if they were outdoorsy, I don't think that they'd be bringing a baby and a dog if they felt like it was too much. Yeah. Also, from what I read, is they were pretty well prepared. They still had water. So, I mean, could that have happened? Absolutely, right? Because it was very, very hot. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they got turned around. I don't know if that was their first time on the trail. But it's still very odd that all of them passed away, I would guess, in a similar time because she wasn't very far from them. Yeah. And when you look at this particular trail within the Sierra National Forest, the Savage Lundy Trail is considered the most difficult trail. But it's only three miles long. And since they were found like a mile and a half away from where they had parked, they had either traveled a mile and a half or four and a half miles, right? Like they went the whole thing and then came back. But like you can camp along the trail and like you can get fire pit permits. So like you can hang out along the trail. Yeah. So that tells me that it's like a relatively safe place to be. I don't think that you would be able to camp along a trail where the carbon monoxide was so deadly that you could just die. Right. Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and also from what it looks like when you're like looking at a map, So it says the way that this particular trail looks, it looks like it ends at what they call like Jerseydale Road. But Jerseydale Fire Station is on that road. It's like listed on this map that I'm looking at. And so I feel like if something was wrong, they were close enough to get help. You know what I mean? Yeah. I find this highly unnerving. It's very, very strange. It's very strange and very sad that this little family all died. Yeah. Also, since we last recorded, there is a slight update with this case. The trails and campgrounds near where the family were found are now closed due to unknown hazards. The trail was shut down last weekend, and it looks like it's going to be closed until at least September 26, according to the Sierra National Forest officials. Also, the family's autopsies and oxy's necropsy were inconclusive. We're still waiting on toxicology reports, though. They have now ruled out the use of a gun and other weapons, which I feel like we knew that because they had said that their body showed no signs of trauma. They've also ruled out chemical hazards as a possible cause of death. They're also taking some water samples nearby for additional testing. But again, we'll update you as we find out more. So the next case we're going to talk about, it actually occurred in 2019, but there was a conviction this month. So that's what brings it to now. 
So on April 1st of 2019, the owner and three employees of RJR Maintenance and Management were murdered. And so this particular company is a mobile home property management office, from what I understand. And it's in the small town of Medan in North Dakota. Each victim had been stabbed to death, but two were also shot. Between the four victims, they had a total of about 100 stab wounds. Gosh. Yeah. Very much overkill. Very much overkill. And so the victims were Robert Fackler, who was 52, and the owner of the company, Adam Fuhrer, who was 42, and then a married couple named Lois and William Cobb. Now, what I find interesting and disturbing about this case is that, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but the prosecution was never able to nail down a motive as to why the person who was convicted did these crimes. And so Chad Isaac, a local chiropractor, was charged and convicted this month for these murders. But so this feels like a very cut and dry case. And I'll talk a little bit about like the evidence they collected. But police collected fingerprints, footprints, physical evidence like bodily fluids and bullets, as well as digital evidence like surveillance footage. And they were able to collect surveillance footage from outside the offices, as well as several businesses in the area. So there was a lot of footage to look at. But so they saw Isaac enter the office before it opened because it opened at around, I want to think, 8, 8.30. But he got there at 6.47 a.m. He left the premises. And so when he walked in, he was wearing brightly colored clothing. When he left, he was in all dark clothing and it was about 7 a.m. Okay, so he thought about it. Yeah, so they saw like, I say Isaac, but they saw a figure go in, bright clothing, leave with dark clothing. And so the security footage showed a vehicle being taken and then they were able to look at security footage from another business and see that it was driven to a place called Indigo Signs, which is about a block away. On the door handle, there were blood smears. So surveillance footage from other businesses in the area shows him basically walking down the street away from the management company and the sign company. And it's interesting because I I feel like I haven't seen many probable cause affidavits where they're like, this footage shows him walking south on this block and then north here and like going here and this way and that way. But they piece together his trail, like how he walked. And then eventually he like walks out of frame. And what's interesting there is in the footage, they see a person who's wearing dark colored clothing with their face covered with something dark. And it looks like they have something like in the front of their jacket because it's balked up and they're kind of like hunched over. Like you'd like think if you were hiding something in a jacket, what it would look like like that. Yeah. And so that same day, early in the morning, a McDonald's employee called law enforcement because they saw a person wearing a camo ski mask and dark pants and shoes. She said there was something in front of their clothing that made it appear puffed up. They got into a newer white 4150 using a key and they pulled whatever it was in their jacket out on the passenger side and put it in the car before they got in. And they said, that, oh, they look smaller after they put whatever it was in there. So like clearly it was puffed up. And they mentioned that I want to think they mentioned that there was rust on the car as well. So she saw the person get into the truck and leave. Police obtained more footage of the vehicle and were able to piece its movements around for the next couple hours. So around 10 in the morning, a better photo was obtained of the truck and they were able to get the license plate number. And they identified the vehicle as belonging to Chad Isaac. Right around this time, Deputy Justin Cromer of McLean County Sheriff's Office saw a picture of the truck and was like, oh, that's my chiropractor's truck. He even said that he was aware, like he was like, oh, he, he drives an F4 150 that has rust on it that's white. He also said that he's only ever seen Isaac and sometimes Isaac's dog in the truck, that he's never seen anyone else drive it. And Deputy Cromer was like, oh, this is what he looks like and was able to give broad strokes description of the person who was driving the car, like height and weight and such. So 
law enforcement determined that Isaac had lots that were managed by RJR Maintenance and Management. So three days later, police pulled Isaac over for a traffic stop and they executed a search warrant on his car. And they found that there was blood near where he was seated in the car, as well as on the seatbelt and on the passenger side door. So after he was arrested, they took photos of his knees because he had injuries to both. I just thought was interesting. Yeah. So law enforcement executed search warrants on his home and office. Now, in his home, it was like, if you think of stereotypical movie, I have murdered someone. What is my house going to look like? That. Like, they walked in and they were like, it smells like bleach. It reeks of bleach. So they said it smelled like bleach in several areas, including the entrance and the bathroom. They said they found a pair of black gloves that looked like they matched what the person was wearing in the video. They also appeared to have been bleached. There was clothing in the washing machine and dryer that matched the clothes and the assailant was wearing in the surveillance footage before they went into the offices. They found a 14-inch knife with a blade that was bent. There were several firearms in the house, in addition to a Ruger-style gun box and ammunition that they kind of found all together. And in the box, they found bullets and a receipt that showed it had been purchased just the day before. My gosh. Yeah. And there were 38 caliber rounds that had been shot at the scene that they removed from the victim. So they knew, like, ish what kind of bullet. And there were a total of nine shots fired at the scene. They found a sock with nine spent shell casings in his home. So he collected them for authorities. Yeah, apparently. And then they found a gun in the kitchen that was disassembled and like different parts were being soaked in bleach. Yeah, he was just like, the evidence is all here in various parts of my home. Yeah, here you go. I packaged it up nicely. Yeah, I've never heard of a crime scene where it was like, would you like to see all of the evidence? Here it is. Yeah, I bleached it for you, though. Yeah, yeah. But not bleaching like car parts. Right. It seems like premeditated and planned out. But, like, he didn't think of, like, a thousand steps. Well, he didn't think that people would recognize his truck, which is bizarre. Or he did, and that's why he didn't drive it there, right? Like, he clearly, like, parked his car at the McDonald's, walked there, came back, right? That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, it's so weird. So, as I mentioned before, the prosecution didn't have a motive that they included in the case. But the prosecutor shared that there were some factors that they think may have led to the attack, including the fact that Isaac didn't like change, that the company that was managing the mobile home park was new, and that the old company that was managing it, Isaac was friends with one of the people who worked there, and their dog had tried to bite someone, so they made that person leave, and they thought he was mad about that. There was a new pet policy, and that there was some issues with snow removal. None of these seem like good reasons for what he did. I mean, not that there's any good reason for what he did, but... Very bizarre. So in the defense's opening statements, they suggest that Robert Fackler's wife, Jackie, may have had a motive to kill her husband because she had found out that he was having a long-term affair. So apparently an employee had said that they heard Jackie say she would never divorce Robert, but she would have him taken care of. So she ended up testifying and she denied that she ever had that statement or that she would do that, which I mean, obviously you would say you wouldn't do that, but like this feels like a messy hit. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of collateral damage. And like, you know how sometimes when you see a true crime case, it's very clear that the person has done it before because they've covered their tracks. Yeah, that does not feel the case here. That does not seem like the case to me, at least. No, it seems like he watched a few episodes of something and was like, "Okay, they said to get rid of evidence this way. He did not finish those episodes of whatever he watched. So DNA experts said that the blood that was in Isaac's vehicle matched Robert Fackler and Lois Cobb. A bloody shoe print of the crime scene matched both the shoe style and the size that Isaac wore. And so during the case, 
The attack itself and the way they described it was so brutal that they had trauma counselors on hand for the jurors. Oh, like that's how bad it was. And so Isaac was convicted after two and a half hours of deliberation by the jury on August 20th. He was emotionless as the verdicts were read. So only one part of his defense team, as Jesse Wallstead, was there that day. And he said that Isaac's life story will play a vital role in sentencing. And it's just like, it's hard for me to understand how they're going to try to, like, get a lesser sentence for this because I don't see what in his life would excuse this in any way, shape or form. Well, that's inexcusable. Yeah. Taking life is inexcusable. Exactly. But that's a lot. So another one that we'll talk about is the Bennett family murders. And this happened in 1984, but things are happening now with the case. And also, this one has so much information that it is a possibility that we might do a whole episode on it eventually because there's a lot of things that I wanted to cover more, but it probably gets its own episode. So in 2018, DNA linked Alex Ewing to the January 15th of 1984 murders of Bruce Bennett, Deborah Bennett and their seven-year-old daughter, Melissa, in Aurora, Colorado. They were killed with a hammer and a knife. Melissa was also sexually assaulted. There was one other victim. However, she lived. Her name's Vanessa, and she was only three at the time, so she was Melissa's sister. She did suffer heavy, terrible injuries from also being beaten, but once at the hospital, she was there for a while, she did live. He was dubbed the Hammer Killer. Gross. Yeah, it's awful. So when they finally figured out who it was, and again, this happened in 1984, the DNA evidence didn't happen until 2018. So that's how long this was left unsolved. Arrest warrants were issued for the murders, and he was already serving time for other crimes in Nevada. He had attempted murder and burglary from August of 1984, and he had been convicted of using an axe handle to attack a couple in their bedroom outside of Vegas. The Nevada prison officials had entered his DNA into the database in July of 2018, and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation discovered the match the following day. So it was very quick turnaround time from when they entered it. Yeah, that's very speedy. He was then extradited to Colorado in 2020. Alex was convicted for the murders on August 6th of 2021, and he's charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of felony murder, and he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. So here's a, another few things that's going on with this. He's also going to stand trial in October for a murder of a 50-year-old woman named Patricia Smith, who was attacked six days before the family was killed. She was also sexually assaulted. Then also, in January of 1984, he attacked a woman named Donna Holm, again with a hammer. He beat and sexually assaulted her and left her to die. So she was one of four attacks from 1984 in that Denver area. So he was very busy. She luckily also survived, but had a lot of healing to do. She didn't even return to work for a year due to the attack. I mean, that feels reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Her story is just heartbreaking. So he attacked her when she came home and she was in the garage of her condo. Her now husband found her the next day because he was on an overnight flight and didn't get home until the following day. He saw blood on their stoop and then went into the bedroom and found her with a dent in her head. In the hospital, she talks about it. There's an article with her and her husband talking about how they got married and just like, even though this horrible thing happened to them, like how happy they are together now. So she gets a happy ending. That sounds like a very sweet article. It, it was. It was like they talk about their relationship. They go to this horrible thing that happened and then they like talk about their relationship again. It was a nice interview with her. 
you know. But for her story, it makes me just rage. So in the hospital, because of her injuries, she says that she had the mentality of what she relates to a two-year-old would have and basically had to relearn everything and that she had to spend weeks in the hospital. Goodness. So here's the thing that makes me rage. No charges will be filed in her case because by the time he was identified as a suspect, 34 years had passed and the statute of limitations meant that it's too late to file charges for physical and sexual assault. And that's absolute BS. I so thoroughly believe that there should be no statute of limitations for sexual assault because generally just with one because feels morally reprehensible to be like your trauma no longer matters but evidence is already going to be hard to come by so it already weeds out so many cases right and like most people are going to come out of the woodworks 30 years later to allege a sexual assault generally right like unless there's some evidence it's annoying it's stupid and i hate it it's just awful yeah i i'm happy that he was caught and you know he's paying for what he did to that family but i feel like there's not enough like everyone deserves justice yeah i mean i definitely agree with the judge in this yeah so donna and her husband ron were at the final arguments with one of donna's friends for the bennett murder case so that was kind of how she got to get through it is just her her friend had called her and was like hey i'm gonna go do you want to go and she's like you know what i will another thing with him and again we'll probably do a full episode but there's just a lot of things that i find fascinating he was arrested for a crime in arizona as well and escaped He's just an absolutely horrible individual. And Connie Bennett, who's the mother of Bruce, so part of that family that was murdered, she's now 87. And after the trial, she said she's very happy it's all over and that they've been waiting a long time for this. Vanessa, so the daughter that survived, who's now 41, discussed just the lifetime of problems that she has due to that attack. Yeah. And just how that changed her life. Before announcing the sentence, Judge Darren Vale said, I have seen all kinds of evil and wickedness. Nothing compares to the level of depravity that your actions show in this case. There is no punishment that is too harsh for you, and I will do everything in my power to make sure that you never draw a free breath ever again. Hell yeah. Right? I'm like, yes. So yeah, again, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the murder of the family. He's also standing trial again in October. There's just, there's a lot. There's a lot going on with him. As anything comes of it, we'll make sure to update you. That, woof. I'm glad that justice is being served a little bit, right? Like a little bit of justice. Yeah. So we're going to move on to our updates in the Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell cases that are ongoing. So as a reminder, in our last True Crime Digest, we noted that the state had filed notice of intent to seek the death penalty, which I'm pleased about. I mean, I am too. I think we've mentioned this before, but I'm like, I'm against the death penalty. And then I'm like, except for this person and this person and this person. But here we are, two people who kill children. And Laurie is this just cyclone of death where anybody who's close to her seems to die. Anybody who gets in her way dies or wrongs her or even Alex wasn't even wronging her, right? Like he was her enforcer of sorts and he still died. There's just too much death around them. She didn't need him anymore. Ugh, disgusting. Yeah, absolutely disgusting. But I'll be interested to see if either of them receive the death penalty. I would imagine that they would likely both be offered opportunities to flip on the other one in exchange for the death penalty to be taken off the table. Yeah, I'm curious as to if they will. I I still don't know. I don't understand their weird bond. It's all very strange. I mean, I do think that Chad's more likely to flip on Laurie. 
However, from what I understand, and I think the assumption that we're all working under is that her mental competency was brought into question because of the belief structure she had. Right. And so I would be interested to see that after she's deemed competent, if there's some change to her belief structure that would make her roll over on chat because pre mental health facility, I'm not seeing it. Yeah. Every time something new comes up with this case, you know, as far as like either their beliefs or a new detail, I'm just blown away again every time. Like, how how did this happen? How many hands did this slip through? Yeah. Why was this allowed to happen? Then I just get angry for a while and then I have to like let it settle and then a new thing will come up. Yeah. And it's just an endless cycle. So speaking of new things coming up, there were some filings and developments that happened this month. I think one of the most interesting ones was on August 6th, Judge Boyce filed an order that clarified that Lori and Chad have separate cases for the murder charges, but they will have a single trial. So accordingly, each filing should have the caption only specific to the defendant and the respective case number. In opposition, right, to our previous destruction case, but it has since been dismissed, where they were joined together, right? So it was one case. Mm -hmm. Now it's two cases, but one trial, right? So as we discuss filings, we'll note which case they are for. Sometimes it's going to be Laurie, sometimes it's going to be Chad, sometimes it's going to be both. So in Laurie's case on August 6th, Judge Boyce entered an order for appointment of counsel. And so in his order, Judge Boyce notes that individuals who are found indigent are guaranteed a qualified trial attorney. And I like sent Amanda a picture of this because the word qualified is in italics, which just feels like <laughs> I love the way you said it. Judge Boyce, shade, chef's kiss. Yeah, absolutely shade. So he also notes that, however, that defendants can waive their death penalty qualified counsel and hire their own private representation. However, since Lori is currently not competent to stand trial, she's also not competent to make a decision as to whether she wants to waive her right to a death penalty qualified counsel. So basically, she can't make a decision on who her counsel is because she's not competent. Yeah. So given that the case is going to continue to move along as it has been and that there's going to be ongoing evidentiary issues, for example, the DNA testing that would use the remainder of the sample. The court ordered a death penalty certified public defender to appear as co-counsel with Mark Means. And so that same day, August 6th, the court appointed James Archibald as Laurie's death penalty certified public defender. Okay, so like when we talk about James Archibald, we went to what we believe would be his website, right? It's uh, jimarchibaldlaw.com. And it's literally two little links. That's it has his contact information, his phone number, and it says phone or text in an email. A Gmail. <laughs> Couldn't even get one at jimarchbothlaw.com. Just saying. No, no. Free emails all the way. Real quick, I'll just, you know, I'll read his little three-sentence biography. Jim Archbold has been an attorney since 1991. He has tried over 85 jury trials in Idaho state courts. He has won jury verdicts of not guilty in criminal court in 10 different counties with clients charged from DUI to murder. Oh, forgive me, four sentences. <laughs> he appears regularly in divorce court and has won custody cases for his clients. There's not even a picture. There isn't. This looks like a quick website that he threw together in 12 seconds because he knew this was coming. I feel like he absolutely made this for this case because people were going to keep asking about who he was. And there's a remarkable absence of him on the Internet. I saw him in relation to one of his previous defendants, who I believe also was being tried for the death penalty. I also found a website where it basically talks about like the shady things that attorneys have done or judges or magistrates. Mm -hmm. And they talk about some 
things that I think are in relation to him. Okay. But it's an interesting website that I'd never seen before, but it feels like some some things that I couldn't prove, so I wouldn't want to say. Can I speculate on memes for a moment? Mm-hmm. I wonder if he finally realized that he can't tweet details about the case all the time because he hasn't had any tweets since June. I think that there is nothing for him to tweet. Well, normally he gets really riled up about things. And honestly, he's been busy. He's been very, very busy. And we're going to get to that in a second. So from my very novice view, it didn't appear that Mean shared information with Archibald at first. And I say that because on August 9th, Archibald filed a motion for discovery requesting Laurie's statement, Chad's statements, Laurie's prior record, reports of examinations and tests, state witnesses, expert witnesses, police reports, and, quote, any and all audio and video recordings of the incident, including interviews investigating the incident. So the evidence involving the case, basically what he's looking for, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, so what's going on? Yeah, he's like, what are we doing in here? And I'm like, oh, man, like this poor person, right? You walked into a case, buddy. I was so overwhelmed just as like a person discussing the case, not having all of like the true facts, like, yeah, the behind the curtain facts. Good luck, bud. Good luck. So in response, Lindsey Blake on behalf of Fremont County and Rob Wood on behalf of Madison County filed a first and second supplemental discovery disclosure. Now, Archibald filed it in Laurie's case. But the responses were in both Laurie and Chad's cases. Okay. So in the response, they noted that statements made by Chad and Laurie are included in the incident reports, the sheriff's officer reports. So in their response, they included that either one, everything he's asked for is in reports that have already been provided. And if it's not, that means that he would need to make an appointment with whatever agency is holding the information, right? So like test information, like if they wanted to look at that. Or if they wanted to review, like, footage that they can't share, they would contact that agency. So that's why I was like, perhaps. And so tangible items that they couldn't copy, basically, he can, like, make an appointment to go view. That's why I was like, are they sharing evidence? Because so far, those seem like two arms that are not working together. Yeah. So on August 11th, Mark Means filed a motion to dismiss the grand jury indictment. Means argued that the case was stayed from further proceedings pending a determination of the issue of Laurie's competency and that this applied to all proceedings, not just in the destruction case, because that's where the mental competency determination was originally made. It wasn't made in the murder case. So Means stated that the stay that was in effect in that case was in effect for all cases. So he argues that the grand jury indictment is a direct violation of the stay and he's seeking sanctions against the state. And one of the things that I find low-key annoying about Means is that he keeps asking for sanctions anytime he thinks someone did something quote-unquote wrong. And so I feel like it chips away at his credibility. Mm -hmm. So this next part I found fascinating. One of the things that I do enjoy about Mark Means is that in the file of his filings, he'll always include some juicy information. So, for example, on his August 11th motion to compel, he includes the letter that he sent to Lindsay Blake and Rob Wood. And basically, we get a lot of information that wouldn't have been just included in the motions. And we're going to get to that into a second. But the motion basically alleges that the prosecution has not produced evidence or that it's incomplete or summaries exist where there should be videos. So when it gets to this letter, he's super detailed on what information is missing or is incomplete or is just 
cut off. In some instances, he'll say, during this interview, you talk about another interview. I want notes from that first interview. So it's actually, from what it looks like to me, a very thorough review of the evidence. He's like, you mentioned a video here. Where is it? This person mentions an interview with somebody else. Where is that? And so you can see him trying to like piece together this giant spider web of information while trying to understand what there is, but also figure out what's missing. Right, right. Which, interesting, interesting. And also, I mean, we're talking about four murders here, right? And in this case, it's just three murders because Charles will be in Arizona. Right. But for these three murders, they're different times, they're different dates, they're different methods. And from what I understand, different locations. So the sheer amount of information that is gathered, I would imagine, is just staggering. So here's some of the information that he claims is missing. There's so much. I'm not going to get into like every single detail because one, that's tedious. And two, that would be like the next three hours. But so here's some of the pieces that we thought were interesting. He alleges that he didn't get the reports, notes and photographs from Tammy's autopsy and that there's conversations and information, including videos from interviews with Melanie Gibb that are missing, including communications between law enforcement. The next part I'm going to read as a quote, just because I was a little confused by it. This is the first time I'm hearing of a journal or a diary. So it says, what appears to be a journal slash diary of various persons does not identify the author and withholds the journal in its entirety. Please identify the author of the journals and produce the entire journal slash entry. Interesting. Have you heard of any type of diary situation before now? <laughs> Bizarre, right? And especially considering the way that's worded, it sounds like there's multiple authors. Yeah, I remember emails back and forth and things like that with various parties, like not just Lori Chat, but there's a lot of different emails out there, but not a diary. Yeah, so strange. So he also asks for details on an interview with a person named Regan Price, as well as their whereabouts during the incident that they actually gave a statement about. And what they are alleging is that they heard a gunshot the day of the raccoon shooting. Quote, unquote, raccoon shooting. Quote, unquote, raccoon shooting. Basically, Chad texted his then alive wife, Tammy, and said, there was a raccoon on the property and I shot them during the day. Right. And talks about burying that raccoon in their pet cemetery. Bizarre. And for a number of reasons. Yeah. Many people speculate what he shot that day or that it was actually Tylee. Also, the list includes note of a man named Joe who was across the street chopping wood during the attack on Tammy with a paintball gun and that perhaps he had seen something. There's also interviews with a woman named Kathy Brown about the paintball incident that I think are incomplete. Additionally, there's interviews with Heather, Matthew, Jack, and Sheila Daybell that are not complete in either their entirety or their missing videos. Refresher, paintball incident, before Tammy was actually murdered, she alleged that somebody had tried to shoot her with a paintball gun when she was coming home from grocery shopping. Some folks think that it wasn't a paintball gun. Many folks. Many folks. I'm pretty sure. Yes. It's not a paintball gun, but yes. Yeah. So this is uh, what I found the most interesting. The details of an interview with Margaret Brown, quote, including, quote, any and all other evidence of spiritual visitation of Mrs. Daybell to this witness. What? Interesting. I want to know everything. So he also wants details of an interview with Melanie Gordon, and she was a person who had attended Tammy's funeral, and she said that there were four men at the funeral who did not appear to be friends or family, and they didn't attend with wives. 
she says that they were kind of acting strange. Ooh. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think that by the time that Tammy had died, it was completely possible that it was police at that point. By the time she had died, like, there was so much going on that was bizarre. And then the last interesting part was gym records for Tammy. Yeah, and for what we've heard, she was training for, like, a marathon. Yeah. That's kind of that speculation of, like, how did she die naturally if she was, like, getting in shape to do this? Just very strange. Exactly. So the last filing from Mark Means on August 11th was a supplemental declaration in support of the motion to compel. And it basically, he complains that his trip to Fremont County to review evidence did not go as he had planned. From my reading of it, it looked as though he didn't clear it with Lindsay Blake before he went. So like he went and was expecting to be able to see like certain items and they weren't produced in the way that he wanted them to. It also looks like there was a hard drive that was given and that it may have been like it just wasn't functioning. Yeah. And so he seemed pretty angry about that. So just to kind of close out filings for Chad's case, there's motions for hearings that are scheduled for both August 30th and September 20th. And then in Chad's case, the motion for the change of venue is scheduled for October 5th at 9 a.m. And that's actually the actual Fremont County Courthouse. Now, what's interesting about that, right, is that I would imagine if they're sharing a trial, any motion for change of venue would affect both. Yeah. So... For Laurie's status hearing regarding her competency, which was on August 30th, they continued the hearing until September 8th because Laurie's doctor submitted informal letters that would not rise to the level of the progress reports that are required under the applicable statute. So accordingly, it was pushed to the 8th so that the doctor had time to create an actual progress report. And they actually said who her doctor was. And his name is Dr. Kuntz. I looked him up. Oh, did you? He has good reviews. His first name is Thaddeus. Love that. And we had actually speculated about where she was. And we were wrong. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So is it the further one? So, no, it's neither of the ones that we thought that she was going to be at a state hospital. And so when you put him in the old Google machine, it says he's affiliated with St. Alphonsus Regional Medical Center, which is in Boise. So that is kind of far, though. Yeah. We thought that she was going to be at state, south, north, or west. And she was at none of these. And we had originally talked about it with a person who had escaped. And I did do a little searchy search of St. Alphonsus to see if anybody had escaped and did not see anything like that. Yeah, so this one's very far. This one, if you just go from Idaho Falls to Boise, it's about a four-hour drive. Okay, which is not as far as Idaho Falls to the North Hospital, which I want to think we had looked at was about eight hours. Well, I'm glad that they picked one that has a competent doctor and that doesn't have any record of people escaping. Yeah. Because, yeah, honestly, we want her to get the good care because we want her ready for trial. Absolutely. So another thing that aired on September 1st was the 48 Hours episode with Chad Daybell's children finally all talking about their thoughts. What did you think while watching it? I was surprised at some of the things they said, but they didn't really talk about a ton of things that were news, really. And we'll get into like some of the specifics, but I feel like there was only two things where I was like, hmm, did not expect that. But everything else was really just a recap of things they'd already said. And I feel like you could watch some clips and get the gist of it rather than watching like a full hour. I also watched it live. So I was like in the commercials. So there was a lot of downtime in between information. That's true. That's true. I luckily recorded it like 20 minutes in and was able to skip most of the commercials. Yeah. But there were a few things where I was like, huh, I'm surprised that they think this way. 
But on the other end, no. So if you haven't watched it yet, we're going to talk about some of the answers. So if you want to hear it from them first, pause for a moment, go watch it and come back. But they think their dad was framed. Wild. Now, I I will say they had me going for like a second, like for a second. And there's one particular argument. And I was like, okay, you've got us there. You've got us there. But I don't know. Yeah. So the reasons Emma Daybell says that her dad might have been framed was he wouldn't want bury a body in his yard because of how open the land is and that she thinks there would have been better spots outside of the property. I'm like, "Mm, okay. And then also that he used to be a grave digger and he wouldn't dig a shallow grave. Now that second one is the one where I'm like, "Mm, okay, yeah. And I want to think it's Morgan Lowe who is like, just because you're a grave digger doesn't mean you're going to be good at digging a grave when you're the murderer. Like he doesn't say it that blunt, but I feel like that's a compelling argument. Yeah, that's what he meant. Yeah, he wanted to say it that clearly, but he was much more diplomatic about it. And my thing is, is that, you know, the things that his children did not talk about during this was the horrific way in which those children died and that the way their remains were disposed of. And you could not have done that on site without the property owner knowing, in my opinion. That and also, so he wrote a book about being a grave digger and he talks about all the equipment that come into play during a burial. He's not going to have that equipment. He's not going to have all of the things necessary to dig it properly. So, yeah, maybe he was a great grave digger when he had the proper tools and worked in a, a cemetery. But why would that move over to his backyard? Yeah, I mean, that's that's very fair. I will say during this interview, they all looked somewhere between eerily calm and emotionally wrecked at different times. And I said to Amanda, I was like, it looks like they all took a Xanax before it began because like they're all very calm, like stoic, if you will. And to me, it just looked like a group of people who are processing terrible truths because they've lost their mom, right? Their mom's gone. There's no getting her back. Regardless of whether their father goes to prison or not, they're not getting their mother back. So I could see wanting to believe that your father is innocent because otherwise you either have to forgive him or willfully lose your second parent. Right. It's like a coping mechanism. Yeah. And it is something that I think it's fairly common, right? Like no one wants to think that their parent is a monster. Exactly. So like I felt bad listening and even Emma had mentioned that she's received threatening messages and especially towards her children, which is absolutely not okay. I personally, I don't think that the kids really had anything to do with it. I think the only one that I was a little like, hmm, is when Garth talks about the night that Tammy died. And first off, they do say that law enforcement mentioned to one of them that Tammy was asphyxiated. And I was like, hmm, like what would cause that? Because I think of like strangulation or something like that, right? Like that's the first thing that comes into my head. And I Googled what causes it. And it could be anything really. It's like choking, a foreign object, suffocation, strangulation, drowning, the tongue being lodged in such a way where it's like blocking the airway because of a person being unconscious. Mm Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, what can cause those things too? Like, is there other natural versus someone doing it to her? And there is. There's like collapsed lung. There's heart failure, sleep apnea, asthma. But then there also are things like drug overdose and inhalation of toxic fumes like carbon monoxide. So I'm kind of like in my head trying to piece together everything I know and everything that they're saying too. And there is an article that East Idaho News had last year that said a friend of Tammy's named Mandy Fowler spoke with Emma after Tammy Daybell's death. And Emma supposedly said something along the lines of that she had pink foam coming out of her mouth. 
And that's always stayed with me, even though I have looked it up. Pink foam can be caused by a number of different things. And it's really just when someone's dying, from my understanding, I'm no doctor. I'm no uh, scientist, if you will. But when you're dying, if you are struggling to breathe and you have like a coughing fit, sometimes the small vessels could rupture and then that can mix with the saliva and everything and kind of make that happen and make everything turn pink. Yeah. So it's not necessarily uncommon. It's just something that stuck with me. So here's my thing. If she had been strangled, whether it was by hands or by a tool, they would have been able to tell outside. Yeah, outside. But like also they would have been able to tell in her eyes because often when someone is strangled, vessels in your eyes will pop. So you'll be able to see like pulling of blood in the eyes. So if that had been the way that she died, I think that they would have been able to visually see that. I don't think that always happens, but I think it's pretty common. Yeah. And I would imagine if you were a person who hadn't done this before, you wouldn't know how to not have that happen. So I don't know if strangulation really fits. We talked about earlier where people really thought that it was poison because of the way that the statute was written for first degree murder. Yeah. And that still could be like it definitely could be something like that. Poison? Something. I mean, if a drug overdose can cause those. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that a drug overdose, the reason why you're asphyxiating, though, is because you're aspirating, right? Like that you're swallowing fluid into your lungs or if something's shutting down, possibly. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I'm not going to rule anything out. I Honestly, I don't know. I'm, I'm just waiting for the autopsy to eventually make its way to the media. Yeah. Once the trial starts. But the way that Garth described that night was just a little weird to me. So he was asleep and he heard a thump and then he heard his dad yell, Garth, Garth, come quick. His mom was half on the bed and half on the floor. And he said he helped her back onto the bed and said, Dad, I think she's dead. And he just said his dad was pacing back and forth saying, this can't happen. How could this be? What are we going to do? And, you know, just like panic sentences, right? And then the coroner, when they came, said it looked like that she died of natural causes. And then they talk about how her health was failing, which there's a few things in that where I'm like, wait a minute, didn't she visit her family not terribly long before? And they were like, she seemed fine to us. And she was going to the gym regularly to train for a race, right? Right. And Emma did say, too, like that Chad was just traumatized and he kind of didn't talk about the autopsy. Like he didn't make that decision that it was kind of left up to them. And she's like, if he was hiding something, why would he have let us decide? And I'm like, because you decided right. If he had pushed for one, I wonder what his tune would have been. Also, that they didn't know that Lori even had kids. They didn't know that Tylee and JJ even existed until they were already missing. So they're claiming their dad's innocent, but why would he keep a secret that they had step-siblings? Well, also, I mean, what I enjoyed was Emma's stance on his getting remarried so quickly. The fact that she was like, it was socially inappropriate, but it doesn't mean he's a murderer. And I was like, okay, so like you're on board that this is super sketch. I'm pretty sure, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that they knew that he was going to get married, right? She said it was a big surprise in the interview. Yeah, I don't find it surprising that they didn't know about her kids because they didn't know about their marriage. So, like, why would they know anything about her? Well, I'm saying once they found out that he was married, I mean, by that time, the kids were already, unfortunately, dead. So I guess that's why he wouldn't bring them up. But then he knew that they existed, right? Yeah. And so if he had no role to play and your wife has no kids all of a sudden, right? How How is he framed? How? Exactly. Well, and also when the interviewer even said, hey, did you tell your dad just show the kids? 
I thought that response was really interesting. Emma said yes, she asked, and he said he couldn't for their own safety. And Garth said, I don't know either. And Leah said, we trusted our father and he trusted Lori. I'm sorry. What? I trust that you like you have put your children somewhere safe where no one knows. Just all around weird. And remember the weird talks with Melanie Gibb. If you go back to her interview that she had recorded, there's just so many things that say, no, you knew. And let's say maybe he didn't play a role in killing them, right? Yeah. He still knew. He had to have known that they're on the property. The whole raccoon incident was brought up as well. Just going back, he texted Tammy that there was a raccoon and that he shot it. He buried it in the pet cemetery. Garth said, yeah, he told me about the the raccoon, too. We were having a raccoon problem. And then they mentioned in the 48 Hours episode, there's no raccoon, though, that was found in that animal cemetery. I want to say they found like a dog and a cat, but no raccoon. And their rebuttal to that was, oh, well, we have another animal cemetery on the other side. Well, what's interesting, too, is that I saw on like a Facebook post or one of the many groups that we're in where someone talked about allegedly that John Pryor had asked if they had dug in two different places. Like if they had like looked at another area on the property and dug there during the preliminary hearing and that they hadn't. And that was from last summer. Right. So like that, which I thought was very interesting, that this has been brought up before, apparently. And I know that you and I have talked about this. I want to think we may have talked about it in our original episode on Valor, which was Sinister Love, just back from February. The fact that you wouldn't bury like a rabid animal in your pet cemetery Right. And I say rabid because raccoons are nocturnal. So if it was out during the day, I'm assuming it would have to be rabid. And also, like, why else are you having a raccoon problem? These cute little trash pandas. Get over it. Get a metal trash can. Live your life. You don't need to kill them. I really love them, too. But I'm pretty sure that they kill and even eat sometimes small animals. And I believe Tammy liked things like ducks. They eat ducks? What? I don't know how to process this information. And we know that Tammy loved ducks. So like that makes sense. Okay. Also, though, like that would explain why he was saying he was killing a raccoon, because if she loved ducks, she was not going to be a fan of raccoons. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm processing that. But anyway, so a man and I had talked about you wouldn't bury this animal with your pets because it's not a pet. The way they said was a place where we buried animals on the property. It wasn't a pet cemetery. It was just like a place where they buried animals. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. Yeah, I wonder if they are going to go back and maybe investigate that a little bit more. I hope they have answers and I hope they have tangible evidence to prove one way or the other. So overall, I thought it was an interesting interview. Again, like Lindsay said, it didn't give too much new information. It was more just hearing their side of things. And also like Emma breaks down once too, just like walking through the yard. And it is sad. I can't even imagine what they're going through. But also I think them thinking their dad is innocent is just a coping mechanism because in no way do I think he was completely innocent. And I was like, I was okay with the interview and I'm like, okay, yeah, they're grieving. They're going through it. And then they talked about JJ's red PJs again and the state of his body. And I went to instant rage again. Just every time they bring that up, I have tears in my eyes and I'm just like, how could you? Yeah. And I don't know whether he murdered them, but he's culpable. And that is the part where I come back to like 
he's culpable in their death. And I thought it was interesting, though, too, just before we wrap this up, that they didn't think that Chad radicalized Laurie. And they'd actually, they said like, oh, he never talked to us about zombies and he doesn't have a cult because if he had a cult, we'd be the first members. And let me just tell you, that is a terrible argument for there not being a cult because, and I've said this before, remember, this was many moons ago. I don't know when I said it, but I know I've said it, was that I think that his kids are aware of his beliefs, right? Like, I don't buy that. Like, I feel sad for them. But in the same respect, I wonder, are they also aware of this belief structure? Because I don't see how they wouldn't be. I've said it before, but it is possible that the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, right? Like, if you were in a cult that did this kind of stuff, you likely wouldn't be advertising it. Well, most of the time when you're in a cult, you don't know you're in a cult. Yeah. Right. Like they condition you to believe certain things little by little. They don't just, hey, kids, this is what we're doing now. It's years of conditioning to make them think a certain way. So, yeah, I totally believe they don't think that they were in a cult. Maybe there's not an actual cult. I think that there's a lot more people with these beliefs and that's just the word that we're all using. Exactly. But no, they they wouldn't know. Like they wouldn't know. And that makes no sense to me. Agreed. And also just to note in Chad's case, he filed a waiver that forfeits his right to a speedy trial. So that gives them essentially more time on both sides then. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not going to happen in November, which a lot of people I've seen some comments like they're like, no, like he just needs to pay. But I'm like, you know what? It's good on both sides to really get a good amount of evidence collected and arguments and all of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it behooves everyone to do this right so we don't have to do it again or have to deal with appeals or anything like that. Yes, get a strong case. Do it right the first time. I think justice will prevail, like with how much is coming up and how now they're including Tammy. And then in Arizona, where looking at Charles, I really do think they're going to have a really strong case and they're going to do it right. I agree. I really do agree. And also just from looking at what seems like really, really tedious Little by little filings, it seems like they're answering the big unsexy questions before trial so that these things are not debated, you know, like, yeah, they're getting all the evidence. They're making sure everyone's reviewing everything. They're making sure that Laurie has competent counsel. That's super important. And especially now that the death penalty is on the table. So if you have any cases that you want us to cover, including any missing persons cases, feel free to send it to us at truecreepspod at gmail.com or any and all of the social media that we'll talk about in our outro. Yeah, and make sure to follow us on social media. We do post case details as they come up on there. And also, if you are enjoying the show, Take a minute, leave us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. If you send us an email letting us know you did so, we'd be happy to send you a sticker. Another thing that I want to bring up that's super exciting is our birthday, podiversary, whatever you want to call it, is coming up in October. So excited. So we've been podcasting for a whole year and it's crazy. So we thought because that was coming up, we wanted to do a special episode and we want to have our listeners help us out and be included in the episode. And with that, we are taking scary story submissions. So if you have a spooky story, either personal, something that happened to a friend or a family member, and you want to share it with us for the episode, there's two ways you can do it. You can jot it down and email it, or you can record it so we can hear your beautiful voices and we'll have you in our episode. Yeah, you can legitimately creep with us. 
Yes. So if you want to be included, email us at truecreepspod at gmail.com with your story or audio. And if you mess up in your audio, if you cough or something or you re-say something, Lindsay and I will edit it. So don't be scared of recording it because we'll help you out. Yeah. So the submission deadline for the stories is September 24th. And on the email itself, if you can put in the subject line, listener stories, so that we can make sure we know who you are and what it's for, add your pronouns and your name. Or if you'd like to remain anonymous, we can do that for you too. I'm just so excited. Me too. I can't wait to hear these stories. And we've already gotten a couple. They're good. And they're so good. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 